Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist and podcaster Ezra Klein. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, Ezra. Hello, how are you? Here we are. Here we are. The book is great. I made too Thank many you. notes. I have too many notes in front of me. But That's wonderful. I that think that you and so I together are capable of having a conversation, even if I have too many notes. Well, I mean, we'll see. Right, let's not get overconfident. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. Where, where are you? Are you on the West Coast? Yeah, I'm in SF. Okay. Uh, getting ready to go to the East Coast on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to be for the holidays? Um, I'm going to be here in Minnesota. You know, my kids are, I'm at the other end of the parenting spectrum from you. So my children are grown up and gone, but they're both home. And then I'm going um, with both of them to Mexico for a week. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. So they're probably sleeping the night and everything at this point. They're what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I sounds and I good. am not sleep deprived, but there's <laughs> there's a real deep emotional toll at this at this perspective. <laughs> it's not yeah, so pro- physically exhausting. Problems are different. <laughs> um. So Chris, what do you what do you need since it's a tape sync? Okay. Okay. Are we? We are. Okay. Um, All of a sudden, Krista, you begin to sound weird. Oh, I do? Yeah, now there's like a, I wouldn't quite call it an echo, but like yeah, you're no, speaking I, in a cave. I'm hearing an echo too. Oh, okay. now, now it's, now Am it's I, okay. Are you, is it I sound okay for you now? Yep, now you're fine. Okay, it's good my end as well. Um, so maybe, should we just go? Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm so excited about this. Thank you for yeah. doing it. Yeah. And you have, so, yeah, first of all, congratulations on finishing and the book is almost Whew. born and, you know, it's almost not fair. I, I do think that uh, that publishing a book is the closest thing to the experience of kind of pregnancy and childbirth um, and also how you, it's so painful and long and arduous and fraught with risk and will it finish and how it changes and then... And then you have this, and then you forget all the pain, and you have the and, <laughs> right. And then, uh, you're probably already thinking about writing your next book. I am um, definitely not. <laughs> I I saw a colleague recently, and he yeah. sat down, and he's like, "Oh, I read your book." Yeah. I was like, "Oh yeah," and he said, "Yeah, it's great." And then he just moved on, and it was this great moment of cold water for me, where I realized <laughs> I want to be like, "Wait, no, it didn't. It didn't change everything for you." Like, what, what do you mean? It's great. Like. <laughs> Yeah. That is how people react to the book, where yeah. it's like it's been, you know, this thing I've been living in for years. So I'm trying to trying to adjust what I'm asking of people. Yeah, it's been such a labor <laughs> of love, right? And then this point where it's just about out in the world is this incredible vulnerability, right? What you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, very much. And then, then I think it's like having a child in a nice way that you – then your book just has a life of its own. And like you go back to your – you go back to everything else you were doing – and 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 you know this is a book that will last and it will it will infuse all kinds of discussions and you'll just get to take some delight in that that's my well, prediction i hope so <laughs> thank you i appreciate that prediction um so 
You know, I feel like um, when I read the book, in so many ways, it's 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 the it's a conversation I've wanting I've been wanting to hear and take part in. And and it's really you know it's kind of where you start you know instead of this conversation that I feel like I've heard on repeat so much since 2016, um, especially in rooms full of liberals, um, a lot of people I know right the world I move in um, in large part um, instead of incredulously like how did this happen to us how could this possibly have happened I think you're tracing how we walked into this. Which, in my mind, is really essential to see clearly if we are going to walk out of it. And, um, you know, one thing I want to say is I I think that the conversation I want to have with you um, right now is probably going to focus less on party politics than probably a lot of other interviews you'll do around the book. I mean, we will talk about that because it's essential. But also, um, I really... I want to try as much as possible to not focus on uh, the presidency or the president. I I kind of pride myself on the fact that I think the word Trump has been spoken less than a handful of times on the air here since 2016, and it's it's partly because I I want to talk about all the things. I feel like I feel like I feel like Donald Trump is a symptom and a reflection of things, um, the more important things that we need to be facing. And, and and I think I've probably shared with you this frustration I have with news outlets and journalism I have admired that haven't looked past him and through him to our country. And I feel like you have been doing that. And I think that the book does that. Um, I've, you know, I've seen you doing it in your journalism and in your podcast and now the book pulling together kind of well, this extended conversation that I and others have been listening to on the podcast so does that make sense for to kind of yeah, frame? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I'm. I'm. Uh, I think that sounds great. Great. I mean, I think you're going to have a lot of very politically focused conversations about. <laughs> yeah, the I'm, I'm not. I'm not worried. Nobody will give me a chance to mention <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump. You will get those. You'll get to have that. Um, but I, but first, I want to you know start obviously with a sense of you as a human. Um, uh, and your father was Brazilian. Was was he uh, first generation, second generation, or had he been here? First generation. Okay. So he's uh, so he immigrated to America in the seventies. Okay. And then you your fa- you grew up in Los Angeles, is that right? Uh, outside Los Angeles, I grew up in Irvine, California. Okay. Um, I've never heard you speak about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, and so I'm very curious uh, how you'd start to think about that or talk about so, it. So. So I grew up Jewish. I am Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my – the way I'd put it is that my father is deeply culturally Jewish but is not a believer and my mother is a seeker. Oh, okay. And uh, I sometimes tell the joke that – so I'm always looking for something to not believe in. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> okay. sort of – like I want to find something but I never quite can find something to fasten onto. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in a household that uh, – you know, we went to Temple and I went to Hebrew school both in a sort of, you know, afternoon way for some number of years um, and then for a period of time went to a Jewish day school. And so Judaism was a big part of my life growing up it, in many uh, kind of spiritual and, and ethical ways remains a big part of my life now. But it isn't something that um, I've always I've always in some ways envied people who are able to hold on to a sense of belief. I, I find that I have a lot of trouble with belief. Um, okay. Yeah. And, but I feel like that flows into, in a formative way and in a generative way, into 
your identity as a journalist, your work as a journalist. I mean, you know, here's a way. I think this is a sentence from the book that you've described yourself. I am a voter, a news junkie, and a liberal. Um, I'm I'm curious about where there are roots of those identities, um, those aspects of your identity in that world of your childhood. I, I wonder about that myself. So my my parents were kind of softly liberal, um, I would say, uh, and I don't want to I don't want to speak their politics for them, but. The town I grew up in was conservative. Uh, in fact, it elected its first Democrat only in uh, in the House of Representatives only in 2018. Oh, really? And, so was it in yeah. Orange? Were you in Orange County? Or? I'm in Orange County. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so it wasn't that I grew up in a very liberal area, although um, certainly had liberals in it. And the thing that I thought about a lot growing up, though, was that it was very, it was intuitively obvious to me that it was almost all luck. It was deeply, deeply evident just looking around, right? Knowing, you know, we would go back to Brazil to see my family there. And Brazil is just much poorer than America. Mm-hmm. It is just much poorer than America, right? And, and Brazil is a middle-income country, right? So we're yeah. not talking about the poorest country in the world. And, and, and we would be in Rio, which is a richer part of Brazil. And it was just obvious that what was deciding people's life outcomes was the luck of where they were born. Hmm. Wow. It was just obvious to me that even what was deciding to some degree my not just my kind of big picture life outcomes, right, that I was born into a loving family and a wealthy nation and in, in an era when we had antibiotics, but even in small ways in my life um, that it was just – it's all sliding doors. And so there's a – I have my political opinions, but my political opinions, I feel more than anything else, are built atop a foundation that I don't – believe very deeply in individual initiative, which is a funny thing because I mm. think when people look at me, they see somebody who has certainly profited uh, you know, or succeeded off of some amount of individual initiative. But when I look at my own life or when I look around me, what I see are structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this in the, the book's analysis too. I'm very focused on what are the structures that shape people's decision making? What right. are the structures that lead us to be who we are? I think that we often have an illusion that we made a choice for ourselves when that choice was so fundamentally shaped by who we are and where we grew up and what was around us and what made sense for us to do that in some final accounting, it was really almost never a choice at all. And so there's something deep inside of me that looks around and sees not so much individual humans but people who are subject to larger forces and systems that surround them and I think when you look at the world like that, then it becomes very, very, very deeply important. It becomes of central importance that those systems are just and that in some big way, we are helping people who were born into or who fell into the wrong systems. You know, yeah, and this is all I, – I, it's also been interesting to me, um, especially listening to the podcast where – where you're very present as a human being. I mean, as you've said, like me, you're interested in conversation rather than um, interview. And, you know, one of the things you've talked about, which was a little surprising and it might be surprising to other people, is, you know, I think when you emerged onto the scene in Washington, in the Washington Post, and then later with Vox, you know, you, you felt like this quintessential inside the Beltway journalist. But in fact, that's not where you came from. And also you've spoken a lot about, you know, of course, you're obviously very smart, but you weren't great at school. Like you didn't come – there is this kind of, um, 
you know, this well-worn path into that world of going to certain colleges and having certain liberal credentials and, you know, writing for the Harvard Crimson. And that's not that's not where you came from, but you you kind of you walked into this. More. I remember yeah. I remember being an intern at the Washington Monthly and being there late closing an issue uh, or helping to close an issue because I was an intern. It, it didn't fall to me. And some I don't remember why it happened, but somebody began looking at the masthead and looking at how many people on it had gone to Harvard yeah. or Yale or one of the Ivies. And I went to, to UC Santa Cruz and then UCLA. And I just – I hadn't understood until then how small that world was. Yeah. How much people had grown up with a new republic in their homes. And the point is not to right. make me into some kind of populist yeah. um, folk hero, right? That's not – my, my father's a, a university mathematician. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only to say that it was surprising to me that the West Coast culture of this is very different. Um, and you mentioned some of my kind of background in schooling. This goes, I guess, to what I was saying about systems. But for me, the most present fact about my life is that for me, inside, right, when I'm inside the spaceship, it seems really easy that it could have failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for right. most of... For, There's nothing I guess preordained this point, about this. Yeah. No, for, for I guess now it's been about half of my life when I've been more or less succeeding and about half of it when I was, at least by a lot of measures, failing. Yeah. But during that period, um, you know, when... Which was, you know, basically until I left for college, uh, when I was being bullied. I graduated from high school with a, a 2.2. I got into school because I did well in the SATs. Yeah. Um, I was not popular. I UCLA is a great place and Irvine is a great place. You were also a California kid, right? Which, I was a California yeah, kid. Yeah. And just it's really clear to me that if I had just ended up on a slightly different path, mm-hmm. that things wouldn't go well, that, that I could be the exact person I am because I've I've pretty I've been pretty similar the whole way through. I could be the person I am, and if you just put me in the wrong situation, it's not like I have an indomitable will to succeed. Okay. If you don't put me in something where <laughs> yeah. it fits who I am and what I do and what I love and and what I'm able to obsessively focus on versus not be able to focus on at all, I can just fall apart pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And so that's another part of my just I think skepticism of how much individuals deserve credit for their success and deserve the desserts of that success because, you know, certainly for me and I've been lucky over time to be successful, but for me it feels much more like what happened is I lucked into for a lot of reasons a thing that fit me as opposed to, you know, like I reshaped the world to fit my interests. You know, I think this kind of also does move interestingly into, you know, the the, the large theme of themes of the book and and what I want to talk to you about. I mean, um, I, you know, one of the things, I think, I feel like you make a move in the book, which is really similar to what you have did with Vox and do on Vox and with creating Vox, which is lay, trying to lay out the, and examine the broad and deep context behind the news, which also takes in the historical arc of time and not just, you know, what we call real time now. Um and, you know, I remember being um, last – right after the 2016 election um, in this room full of, you know, academics, very smart people, but academics who are mostly coastal, coastal mostly white, and, and actually also mostly male. And um, there was this conversation happening about how – about just, you know, this – crisis mode this this sense of grief and loss and 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 
and a fair amount of self-pity, you know, kind of this bemoaning of the disaster that had befallen liberal democracy. And there was there was this deep assumption in the room that our democracy had been working so well, right? That li- that we had actually arrived at this great thing, and now it was being, um, you know, it was being undermined. And I think you know a big point that is 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 true in your book is first of all that we that we that we walk around these days with a false and and often romanticized or idealized version of our past of how well democracy has worked across time, but also that. You know, depending on where you sat in this society, even in what we would now maybe look back at as the glory days of the you know late twentieth century, that depending on where you sat, especially if you were not white, um, our democracy has been very fragile in places for a long time. And I just don't think that's, I would even right. I, I would even go further. Yeah, I don't okay. think it's been a democracy for most of American history. Mm. I mean, arguably, we're not a democracy now. Uh, the at least in the way that people think of the word democracy, the president of the United States got more votes than the runner-up in the last election. The majority leader of the U.S. Senate, his caucus, got fewer votes than the minority party in the U.S. Senate. Because of that, the Supreme Court is has a majority from a party that would not have that majority if the other things worked through majority rule. Yeah. So we we live in a we live in a country that is dominated by minority rule. Um, that's just a fact of it. And then for most of the country's history, uh, going up until very, very recently, huge swaths of it were in no way able to exercise any kind of free democratic expression. Mm. Um, a story I tell in the book is, you know, when people think about what is what is a time period of American democratic, small d democratic greatness, they tend to think of the post-war 20th century. Yeah. And for a lot of that post-war 20th century, what you had – was um, what uh, Ian Haney Lopez, who's a, a professor at UC Berkeley, calls a, a Heronvolk liberal democracy, yeah, which is to right. say a, a liberal democracy for white people. But particularly in the American South, you had a Demo- what was called the Democratic Party, right? It was a Democratic Party and it had incredible national power as well. But it was a separate institution. It was a Dixiecrat Party and mm-hmm. it was quite ideologically conservative in many ways. It worked and functioned to hold a system of what was really authoritarian rule in the South in which a racial hierarchy was imposed through both um, acts of law and acts of violence and terrorism, but also a political hierarchy was imposed. I mean, it was very difficult even to be a white Republican in the American South in that period. And there were not free elections. There were states that right. would make you actually do a loyalty test to the Democratic Party to, to, to be in certain elections or, or to hold certain offices. There was, you know, a, an event in New Orleans that the uh, – I think it was called, if I'm not misremembering this, a White League riots where you had a, a contested election between a Democrat and a Republican and the Republican took office and there was a, like a murderous coup. And eventually Ulysses S. Grant had to send in um, the army to, 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 bring, to put down the coup. Right. So we've been in a situation here where we have – we encode our aspirations as realities. And in some ways I think that's healthy because then we look at a moment like we're in right now and we say this divergence represents something that we're not. Um, and, and that's good because it is within that space – 
that you can exert a lot of pressure to make America live up to what it says it, it is or intends to be. But also in encoding those aspirations as realities, we forget the reality of it. We forget how much fighting there has actually been, how much violence there has actually been, how yeah. many people have paid, how many people do not get paid back for what they sacrificed for justice. And I think in doing that, we blind ourselves to not just the reality of our history, but because our present is an accumulated path of that history, the reality of our present too. We, we fool ourselves into believing we are living through some aberration or divergence, right. when in many ways it's what came directly before that was the aberration and divergence. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, I don't know if, if you know this, but I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. And uh, it, it, yeah, it's so that so many of the 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 things that we take for granted and that feel so self evident about what a Democrat is and what the Democratic Party is and what the Republican Party is and who Republicans are is so recent, right? And uh, yeah, that I mean, I mean, I think I think Oklahoma is one of the first states to go for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And when I grew up there in the 1960s, um, I didn't know any Republicans, right? Like, I, I didn't every, – everybody was a Democrat. Um, and just like, you know, you point out that – I mean, there's so many things that, like, that, that the GOP and the conservative movement had not merged as we – as they as – they, uh, as, as they merge in our imaginations now. The Democratic Party was not the – Party of Civil Rights, um, up until a certain point, um, that Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president, right? Like we, and we're, and the, so that's the, the long road that brought us to now. It's just to me, it's so. Um, and I mean, you're you're younger than I am too. I mean, did did you know all of this history as you got into this? Did this fill out your I, picture of where we came from, it, how we walked into it, this? Yeah, it filled out a lot of it. And, and, and I want to say that uh, the, the book isn't only about the story of race in America, though race is in many ways the central uh, – a, a central thread of it and certainly a central thread that is both formed and deformed our politics. But mm -hmm. just while you were saying, one of the things I came across while, while doing the book that I just found so shocking um, – and this just speaks to my own lack of historical knowledge – but Civil Rights Act of 1965, which of course was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson, yeah. a higher – proportion of Republicans in both the House and Senate voted for that act than Democrats did. Yeah, right. And I, I think there are two things worth noting about that. One is one is just first, given how the parties have changed since then, where the Republican Party has become um, very responsive to white identity politics and the, the Democratic Party has become very self-intentionally um, multiracial. Uh, that's just a very different division than we have today. But the other, and this is just striking to me, is number one, isn't it amazing that you could have something as polarizing as a Civil Rights Act, which is one of the most polarizing pieces of legislation we have ever passed in yeah. this country, and it wouldn't break down on party lines? Like, can you imagine anything that would be so central to American politics now that would not be on party lines? Right. 
And even beyond that, I, I just love this one anecdote that it was actually sent to me years ago by by a, a reader. And it was a picture of something he found in a historical archive. But when Lyndon Johnson was passing Medicare, um, after that 1964 election, he had his Senate liaison, the person who ran the Senate for Johnson when he was president or ran his relationship with the Senate, a guy named, uh, I believe it's Mike Manatos. And he, you know, the question was, okay, like given the election, what what happens now with Medicare? And Minatos wrote back and he said, well, you know, if everybody from the election is seated and they're there, Medicare will pass with 55 votes. And back then, um, it took 67 votes to break a filibuster, not the 60 it takes now. Right. So imagine that. You're talking about Medicare, and the assumption is it won't even be filibustered. So just the way American politics worked in the mid-20th century, yeah. it is so different because we've kept the same names for institutions, there's still a Congress, a Democratic Party, a Republican Party. Yeah. It creates this illusion of stability. Yeah. But actually, things really have changed. Yeah. They've been – it's been very fluid. And, and um, I mean, so I think a, a, a big theme of, of the – you know, and I, I do feel like this book is you uh, – clearly, you know, I've listened to a lot of the interviews that you draw on um, – it's really this kind of extended conversation you've been having kind of from inside the American political experience for a number of years. Um, you say that, you know, that the master story here is the logic of polarization, which creates this massive feedback loop that just keeps making the polarization deeper. But, I've, I, you know, I think what I, what I find so helpful um, to... Um, to frame this way is that, as you say, it's not that American politics was not riven by deep and even violent disagreements previously, but these fights did not map onto party they, the way they do now. That that's yeah, really is, the thing that's new. Yeah, this is the central story of American politics in this age, and and it's a strange it's a stranger story than I think we give it credit for. Um, I appreciate you you mentioning that part of the book because it's really true. If you look back to mid twentieth century America, what we were fighting over and the range in which we were fighting is so much wider than it was now. There was so much more political violence. We had urban riots. We had assassinations. <sighs> Um, the kinds of legislation that was being debated and not just debated but actually passed. I mean we just mentioned the Civil Rights Act and Medicare but you could mention I mean Medicaid and the entirety of the Great Society. Uh, the, there was so much happening. The 1965 Immigration Act. The 1965 Immigration Act, the Voting was, Rights Act. Yeah. These are transformative pieces of yeah. legislation. So with the Vietnam War, right, yeah. we – like National Guard killed a protester at Kent State, yeah. the, um, the occupation of Alcatraz by indigenous Americans. The, there was so much happening, the feminist revolution in that period. I mean it's such a big period in American life. But one of the things that is going on in it is that it just is not as political as it all is and it is political. It is not sorted by party. Yeah. Um, it, you have very racially liberal Republicans and just very liberal Republicans. I tell at some length the story of Strom Thurmond who was a Democrat when he was the second most conservative right, member of the U.S. Right, Senate. Right. He eventually became yeah. a Republican but he had been a Democrat yeah. and he ran then as a Dixiecrat and I mean it, sort of making the subtext of American politics text in that moment. Yeah. And so what happens over – it really – race is really the core of this story. 
because what keeps the parties from doing what parties normally do, which is separating themselves across the, the key divisions of the age, is race. You have this Dixiecrat wing of the Democratic Party that is quite ideologically conservative, but because of race and its relationship to the Republican Party, and as you mentioned, Abraham Lincoln is the first Republican president, the yeah. Republican Party invaded and occupied the American South. And the Civil Rights Act is only 100 years after that, right, which in human history is not really that right. long. So there's a there's enmity between the South and the Republican Party, certainly at that time. And so it creates a sort of blocking force in, in, in America. And if you – like political scientists who study polarization, they have these measures of it. And in mid-20th century, you can't just look at polarization as this, you know, what they would call sort of two-dimensional. Um, you need a you need another dimension, and that's race, right? You need to have something okay. that is separate from the to way other things. To understand what the, what the yeah. deep distinction is. Uh, otherwise, the charts don't work. And so it's after the Civil Rights Act. Barry Goldwater, you know, opposes it and becomes a Republican nominee. The South begins to turn uh, into, in, into the Republican stronghold it is today. But it's a slow process. It happens over time. Mm-hmm. But once that blockage is out, once the conservative party uh, is also sort of the white identity politics party, once the liberal party is a multi-ethnic party, everything begins to sort. And so compared to where we were 50 years ago, it isn't just that Republican means conservative and Democratic means liberal um, in a way where that wasn't true. You used to have liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. But it's also the case that we sort by geography. We didn't. It didn't used to tell you a lot to know did somebody live in a dense city or not. Um, that wasn't very heavily related to whether you were a Republican or a Democrat. Now it is. Religiosity was not very different by party. But now the biggest religious group in the Democratic Party are the religiously unaffiliated, whereas the Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. Yeah. The parties are not that different racially. Um, one thing that I do think is important and interesting is that on a lot of psychological measures, and people will measure this in different ways, and they have different names for it, fixed and fluid, openness to experience, um, open and closed. But the parties weren't that sorted psychologically, but now they are. Um, And this just goes all the way down the line. And so as you stack all of these very powerful identities and affiliations and interests and all these things that make up not everything that we are as human beings, but a lot of who we are sort of in public and in groups as human beings, as you stack them on top of each other, the weight of that political, that kind of merged political identity, what Liliana Mason will call a mega identity, it just becomes so heavy mm-hmm. that you become rationally more afraid of, upset at, angry at, in opposition to the other side because they really are more different and more threatening to you. And so it's really that that mixture of not just having these divisions but sorting them all across the same cleavage over a course of decades. But we're now at a – I don't want to call it a terminal point. It can keep happening. But we're at a pretty advanced point in it. Yeah, there's I think more than anything else, that is why politics feels so different to people now. When people say, oh, it just feels so bitter and divisive. Right. They're not wrong. Um, it's not that we are more divided than we ever have been. It's that all the divisions are stacked on top of each other in, in a way politics. they haven't been previously. And. I know that you make a distinction between political correctness, that as a cultural phenomenon, and this political ph- phenomenon. But the two things, they get, they get mixed up with each other. I mean, so when you, when you talk about sorting in that way, it starts to make sense to me. This other thing that I think those of us who've been around for a while, you know, find, our, find so baffling is this, this way um, there are these lists of orthodoxy. Right for being a liberal or for being conservative, we there's this way in which um, 
people have to check out. You have to believe in this entire list of things, and not only that, you have to use the right words to describe um, what you believe and what you advocate for to count in the in-group, which also feels very new. And I, I mean, I think I know it's a 21st century phenomenon that also has to do with generational shift, but but it strikes me that it also has something to do with this: how we're loading all this division into political identity. Does that does that make does that is that on? Uh, does that make sense to you, or am I off base with that? It does. I I look at it, I look at it a little differently. Um, and I'm not even a hundred. And I will say this is a place where I feel a little bit more uncertain myself because mm-hmm. I feel the same thing you're discussing, right? I mean, I'm a political figure out there on Twitter, and any errant keystroke, <laughs> yeah, you know, people people descend on you. But my my sense of what is actually happening here is that paradoxically, these forces feel strongest when they are actually weakest. Now, it is 100% the case, as you're saying, that there used to be more room in the parties for disagreements. So you could be a pro-life Democrat in a much easier way than you can today. Well, as you, you say, you could do the split a, ticket a thing, right? Liberal, like right? Up, you could do the split ticket thing. Would, yeah. yeah. You'd vote for some but, Republican on this and a Democrat on that. You never hear anybody talk like that but anymore. something that I think is true is that what we're living through is a period in which what is taken for granted and what is inviolable is unsettled. And so yeah. in that period that you're talking about, it was very difficult to be an atheist. I mean, we were just mm-hmm. talking about for much of that period that we're talking about, if you're African-American, you probably just couldn't vote. Um, yeah. And so there are all these things happening in American life where the boundaries on who could participate and what could be said. I mean, you really couldn't be a socialist in mid-20th century yeah. America for yeah. a lot of it. I mean, you might get – you might basically get taken to jail. Mm-hmm. And so – the actual um, consequences for straying from the American – I don't exactly want to call it the mainstream, but, but the, let's call it the dominant paradigm. The consequences for questioning or straying from the dominant paradigm were much more severe. But it was so dominant and so many people – not everybody, very importantly, but so many people lived within it mm-hmm. uh, that it seemed freer. In a funny way, it being so settled allowed people to know where they stood. And for well, a lot of people, it was people, more homogeneous, right? I mean, there wasn't more homogeneous, right? right? I mean, if we you were, were a gay, so much more alike, gay, or we am- pretended to be more alike when we accepted right. roles and hierarchies. If you were a gay American in the '60s, you really knew you were unsafe. You really knew that you couldn't tell people, in mm-hmm. most cases, right. who you were and who you loved. Whereas if you were like a straight white. Christian man, you really knew you were safe. Like you really knew that you could say the things you thought and and what you felt. And so now we talk a lot about identity politics, but an argument I make in the book and that I believe quite deeply is that the reason identity politics feels so present to us is actually because the dominant identities have weakened. It's not because we have more identity power Mm -hmm. operating in American life. Actually, we have less. But the thing is, so many identities are now strong enough and recognized enough and visible enough and kind of new enough right ideas they're new and new be, enough they're new verbally they're expressing themselves and showing themselves in a, in a new right in that feeling of them pushing their ideas and their desires and their claims onto the stage mm-hmm. and then also trying to police the way they are spoken about and referred to and treated, that creates a sense of constant threat and danger for everybody yeah. um, in all yeah. sides of it, right? And I think it's a very real thing. And I'm not saying – I don't think it's a good thing. I think we, we're going to need to find better ways to navigate this with one another. But I, I just – I think it's very important that people recognize that paradoxically, identity politics and political correctness, they feel most salient – when in 
a weird way, they're actually much weaker than they were. What's happening is that what we are feeling is the instability in them. And so all yeah. of a sudden, people from all directions are converging to try to redraw the boundaries. And that's a very that's a very disorienting space to be in and a dangerous one, too. Yeah, you know, something I've thought about so much in these years, something I believe is that even if we did not have what feels like, you know, political disarray, um, we were going to have to completely reinvent what common life means and how it works in this century. Um, partly, you know, because of the breakdown of that homogeneity, because of how technology is changing fundamental aspects of, you know, how we how we structure our days and how we learn and lead and, you know, and and, and that and we are this, you know, as you say, the, this great sorting. I, I added the great. <laughs> I don't know. Do you I did an interview with um Joanna Macy a few years ago. She's a Buddhist kind of ecologist and she talks about the great turning in describing this moment we inhabit, which can move towards dissolution and can move towards the creation of a more humane um, and a very different culture, and I kind of I started writing down notes about your your idea of sorting as the great sorting. Um, but so, so as you say, it's not just limited to politics; it's also about race and religion, geography, and how those play into politics. But but I also think, and and there you have a sentence in the book which I, I think is so important: and change of this magnitude acts on us psychologically and not just electorally. The truth is there's so many ways that have that are that that aren't about politics that are just about the air we breathe and again like who how we define our identity and the fact that we're the generation that's redefining marriage and community and gender um this human ground beneath our feet shifting and not to mention the economic ground beneath our feet shifting um that makes this such an un settled time. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes what I feel is that politics has become the thinnest of veneers over this, Mm -hmm. this human condition in a moment like this. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, You know, how do I want to say this? This book is quite personal in its motivation, much more so than a lot of my work. when I began as a journalist, I had this very maybe naive approach that I thought, well, you know, I'll look at something like healthcare and I'll talk to the experts and try to understand the issue as best as I can and give people good information and give them a clear sense of what's happening and how it's working. And, and then, you know, we can all in the light of that sort of rational discussion, make some better decisions. And particularly over the past, you know, five or six years, I just, the unbelievable inadequacy of that approach just became clearer and clearer and clearer. Mm. And it's not that there's never a moment for like a recent discussion about uh, policy in America, because there is, and there are people who listen, and it can be really important, and it's very important at the moments when a political party has the power to do something and they want to do something well. So I don't want to dismiss policy work, which is, you know, my um, roots. Yeah. But- Something that I will say on the more human level that that you're talking about here is that as I traveled through politics in this era, as I started a media organization, as I wrote my articles and talked to people and went on cable news and did all the things that a political pundit or media person is supposed to do, 
I just would have this nagging feeling sometimes that I felt I was trying to do things well, not just good, but well, or maybe not just well, but good, something Mm -hmm. like that. And that I was being caught and the people around me were being caught in this vise of like political decision making that was making everybody worse than who I knew them to be or who I knew myself to be at Mm -hmm. times. And it's not even that I think I – like I I don't feel like this is some mea culpa. Like I I try. you know, I I try to be conscious of it. But one of the really radicalizing things for me in the past couple of years has been this question and it came a lot from my political reporting and talking to members of Congress and watching other journalists and and starting Vox of just have we built a system that has structured itself such that it is – at the very least, very hard for people to express the best versions of themselves within it. Hmm. And I think we have. Um, and trying – and if the book is trying to do anything, uh, as you know, like I don't think I can solve it in the book. But if the book is trying to do anything, it's trying to explain why do people act the way they do in politics? Why does politics act on us such that we turn – from you know the people we uh, like to believe ourselves to being into the people we find ourselves being when we're you know arguing with our aunt who watches Fox News or <laughs> right, you know right. or, or they're or they're arguing with us. Yeah, I have this. I, I, I talk about this interview I did with um, President Obama in the book, mm-hmm. and I talked to him about polarization, and, and he's somebody I, I interviewed him many times, and I have great admiration for him. Um, and he's somebody who I think in a very deep way believed that America could overcome its polarization, believed that a lot of that polarization was illusory. Um, and, and I asked him about it because at that point in 2015 when we had this discussion, he was quite polarizing. And I asked him about this and he said, well, look, we all know that we're one way in politics. But then when we're on the the soccer, the little league field together or at the PTA meeting or we're talking to our neighbors or there's been a storm, we're, we're very different than that. Um, and so, yeah, then maybe when you talk to that person about politics, you can't believe what they're saying. But then you look beyond that and, and they're good people. This country is full of good people. You have a relationship people. with them. Yeah, yeah. but not just that. They're not that they're, yeah, I think they're not what bad he was people. arguing was that the, yeah. the 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 versions of ourselves that politics brings out felt to him sort of wrong. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. what that famous 2004 DNC speech is. Like we're not yeah. red and blue. Yeah. And the the difficult thing for me is that this question of well, what is the true version of ourselves and is there even a true version of ourselves? Because that version of ourselves, that political version, as you say, it's getting bigger. It's absorbing more things. It's becoming more constant. It's becoming more suffused in our culture. And so, like his optimism came from believing that these other versions of ourselves, the PTA version, that was sort of like a, a more a more core truth. But I don't want to say this is a more core truth, but because like I'm a believer in systems, right, and, and environments and yeah. ecosystems, if we are constantly in an environment that brings that out in us, that will become our core truth. And so that question of how politics became a kind of toxic environment um, and how to at least see it when it is doing that to us, that to me is the really important human question in the book and the one that is the most radicalizing question for me to struggle with myself. Yeah, you know, I've thought, I've thought a lot these years about how the the Obama presidency, I mean, for all of us who were there, you know, that, that election night, um, what, what's actually really hard even to cast your imagination back to at this point is how I do think, at least for a, for a minute, for a, for a window of time, um, 
there there was an awareness across the political spectrum, I mean, largely across the political spectrum of, you know, that something extraordinary had been accomplished and that, that this had this meaning, which... Um, which was about what America wants to be and has aspired to be, and and I and I think that there that that I, I, I there's 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 reality to that moment, and you know I'm I, I wish I could be around in a hundred years to see how that presidency will be seen and covered because I have, I think we have no idea now because we're too close to it. But but one thing I have believed that I, that I that you know again I think we could have foreseen this but there was so much optimism right that 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 hope uh catchphrase was you know we we were all in that um and I think even people who were who didn't vote for him a, a fair number you know were in that but but what that presidency also did at a human level is it also surfaced all the unfinished business we had to do as a culture to be worthy of that accomplishment and the truth was for all the talk of a post-racial society, for example, we weren't there. And, but it unleashed the fact, it unleashed that work in, in, in my mind. What, what you're describing about how at the very same time that that happened, our structures have made us more uh, polarized and kind of lock us into polarization, um, that's... That is really stunning for me to think about, um, the convergence of those two things. Because it's hard to – the work is evident out on the surface, um, and it feels harder to do it than ever before. I think that's right. I, I can't believe I'm about to give the answer I'm going to give you, but this is the only podcast where I can do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. Okay. Uh, in the past couple of years uh, – and it was actually, actually not the past couple of years, just the past year – um, and it's actually at the recommendation of Varshini Prakash, who is the executive director of the Sunrise Movement, the climate change movement. Um, I had a conversation with her on my show and asked her, what does she do when she thinks about failure? And she said that every day she reads some of the the Tao, the Tao Te Ching. Hmm. And I thought, that's a strange answer. Um, and so I, I went and I had not read it since I was young um, when I didn't get anything out of it. And sorry, this is a looping, but I promise you. <laughs> no, I, no uh, not, take as long as you and, need. And... This time when I read it, I was really, really deeply struck by its ideas of non-dualism, mm-hmm. um, right? It's kind of challenge to think about everything is also encoding its opposite. Uh, and right. so much of how we are taught to think, I just think in general, but very much in politics, is things are one way. They are right or they are wrong. Yeah. Right. We got it right or we got it wrong. This person won and this person lost. Yeah. Right. That they're like it's like a clean equation that has or one you're woke every or you're single not woke. time. You're woke or you're not yeah. woke. I mean, I remember right after George W. Bush won the 2004 election, I think it was Newsweek that had like a like a we are a right wing nation or maybe it was after Obama. They did like a cover. There was a cover that got a lot of mockery. It said we're a center right nation. And, you know, they're you know, or we're a post racial nation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that there was going to be an answer. And the deep truth about the Obama presidency is that the Trump presidency was within it. Yes. That yes. there is no Trump without Barack Obama. Yeah. That they like he is in a weird way that like the the yin to Obama's yang or vice versa mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. That you these things create their own counter reactions. Um, and that is not to say, by the way, there's something inevitable about them or that they can only go one way. But the evidence, and I have a long chapter about this, is very, very clear that 
Obama, for all that he tried to reflect racial anxieties, particularly white racial anxieties when he spoke about race, for all that he actually didn't speak about race that much compared to other presidents, for all that he tried to be careful, for all that he did in his own personal rectitude and approach to these issues, he himself, like his existence on the stage Mm -hmm. was a deeply threatening symbol that racialized our politics much further than it had been directly before him and that led in many ways to the, to, the, to this backlash, to this group that felt itself demographically losing power, that actually is demographically losing quite a bit of power. They're responding to something very real and very unstable in our politics. And, you know, like Barack Obama and Trump are in some ways such unbelievably perfect foils for each other, right? Yeah. You know, Obama, hope and change, right? Which is, yeah. it's so it's so literal, right? Things are changing and that makes us hopeful. Yeah. And Donald Trump, right? Make America make great America again, again, right? Yeah. Like we need to go back. Yeah. And so there's this very deep way in which the feeling that these things are somehow separate from each other, that having elected Obama, how could we elect Trump? Mm-hmm. Um it's almost the exact opposite yeah. of that. Having elected Obama is very much why we then elected Trump. And by the way, the story does not end with Donald Trump. No. Right? Even right now, and we'll see what happens in, in, in the election. I'm not here to predict that. But there's been a very sharp liberalization of attitudes towards immigrants under Donald Trump. There's mm-hmm. been a very, very big change in, Democrat, in the Democratic Party's view towards immigrants. I mean, if you go look at Bill Clinton's platform mm-hmm. uh, on immigration, it reads like Donald Trump today. Um, the Democratic Party has changed dramatically in part for reasons preceding Donald Trump, but in part for reasons that reflect him too. So there's this very deep way in which everything here is uh, is deeply entwined with itself. And the moments when people think they have most won are almost certainly the moments that um, are going to be remembered as the folly a couple years later yeah. when they think, you know, Democrats talking the Obama era about their rising demographic tide and not recognizing that it was exactly the fear of that rising demographic tide that was going to change white voting patterns and lead to lead to an outcome they never could have predicted, that we've got to be able to see um, these things as somehow it's never going to be all one way and it doesn't, hopefully, it doesn't end. And that's a very, it is a very, for me certainly, a very hard way to train yourself to look at politics or just to look at life. Well, but I think that taking a long view of time, which you do, which, which you know, we have to remind ourselves um, that a long view of time is how time works. And it's just, it's un-American to think that way and it's not instinctive and in fact, you know, the digital world and journalism the way it works now and news the way we're training us to not to not realize that reality um but if you yeah if you think about um about if you under if you take what i would say as a reality based view of time i mean i i would say like i think your analysis of of like us really getting clear on how politics works and is working on us is really important, and at the same time, we can't load all this um, energy into or thinking that just because that that like it, it, the the if you if you want to talk about the moral arc of the moral universe, it's not going to happen on a Tuesday in November because that's when we decided elections happen a long time ago, right? I mean, loading, seeing this historical moment as you said, with some expansiveness and and. And and some reality about it means that that yeah, as you say, nothing stops here, but it's not necessarily all going to transform because there's another election 
in 2020. And that doesn't mean it's not going to, I mean, it is going to transform. That is the only constant, right? I mean, you're, you're the way you, the way you lay out, like where we've been in the last 50 years, 60 years, it's all change. I love your insight there that it's un-American to think about time as long. It's very deeply true. I I struggle with this so much. I mean, as you as you know, the the book is very historical. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself often caught between my instincts, kind of as somebody who does big picture analysis of American politics, and that's to take these like very zoomed out views, and then the the constant urgent recognition that a lot of people don't get the luxury of that view. A lot of people, yeah. and I don't mean this in a kind of a thin, well, it's a privileged way to talk, although may- maybe, but there's a more distinct, I mean, the pol- the hard thing about politics is it's, um, it's supposed to be an infinite game. Um, you know, if you're familiar with that sort of James Carr's idea uh, of like, we're trying to keep the game going. We're trying to keep playing the game of America. Um, we're trying to make sure we're able to to, to pass this um, birthright onto the next generation and the next and the next and the next, because it is actually not guaranteed that a society keeps surviving and much less improving. But at the same time, it's finite. Uh, the the stakes are life and death. People yeah. will die if they don't get health insurance. They'll be deported. They, they, right. They'll be separated from their children. And so there's this way in which these two things, like it's they're both it, true. It's maddening yeah. to be held yeah. between them because yeah. on the one hand, you want to say like you have to take a step back and see this for what it is. And and the, the, the truth is that even under Donald Trump for all of his mania, um, for all that he has done to American politics and for all the ways he has made it feel, it is a better, fairer time to live in America than it has almost been at any other time in our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like even the things that are his most intemperate outbursts. Um, you know, would have, like the compared to what was a mainstream opinion in 1955 or 1975, it's it's not even comparable. Right. So it's important to have that. But on the other hand, that doesn't that doesn't like obviate the human consequences. No, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything for the fact that there are people being crushed by. I mean, exactly. not, and not just policies of the president, but but by the inequities and contradictions of this, this and, and, moment. And this is the thing, though, that I, I do think is very important. And, and there's a big part of the book, I've, I'm in the media, and there's a big part of the book that's very, I would call it media critical. But on the other hand, I'm just trying to describe what I think is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something for all of us in the media to struggle with, which is there's a real uh, way in which the business models, the technological underpinnings of how we get our particularly political information have oriented towards outrage and urgency. Yeah. And something that Donald Trump in particular is very good at doing is dominating the conversation, often with things that are not themselves that consequential, save that they are very strange or very offensive or very outrageous. A lot of the a lot of the worst things Donald Trump has ever said have very little to do with the worst things that he has ever done. And I would like it is still my view, for instance, that George W. Bush did incalculably more damage than Donald Trump mm. did for all that he was a more personally reticent, compassionate man. Um, and I think that he is like a better human being on some kind of deep level on like if I, I would prefer to know him than Donald Trump. Uh, on the other hand, um, the Iraq war and, 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 yeah. and much everybody's forgotten. Everybody's forgotten the, what, how, so that, I think how that moment felt. 
Yeah, and so I think that there's a deep way mm-hmm. in which we are manipulated into a constant state of feeling a constant state of emergency. And it would be one thing if that was a productive emotion, but what I think it leads to is a constant state of either exhaustion or hypervigilance, yeah. both of which can be bad in their own ways. And that's yeah. not to say a lot of people are within that and doing great work and organizing and, and, and trying. But, you know, something that I really do urge people to think about in this book is, you know, is their informational diet a good one? Um, and particularly, have they gotten so caught on national politics and the outrages of national politics they've forgotten the place that they live? Um, something I track a bit in the book is, the progression and transition of what were once very dominant state and local political identities. Yeah. People were more involved in the place that they were and the place they were was quite different. And now a lot of state and local politics is nationalized and people's politics have nationalized and the media sources we we follow are nationalized. Like as we mentioned, I grew up in Southern California. We got the LA Times and I listened to KCRW. Um, now I'm sure uh, that I would be a subscriber to the New York Times online or the Washington Post and I would listen to you know, national podcasts. And there's totally fine things with that. But it would mean that I had a lot less California identity than I did another point. But there's something a lot more generative. You can have a lot more effect and impact on state and local politics. So as much as it's a bit against interest, I'm a national political journalist. Yeah, you're, one thing, one of the very few, I think, actually productive pieces of advice I have for people is to truly try to think about how can they – it's good to know about national politics. But if your diet is basically 90-10 national or more – Maybe think about tilting that back. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I'll be blunt here in a way that cuts against my professional interests. We give too much attention to national politics, which we can't, which we can do very little to change, and too little attention to local and state politics, where our voices can matter much more. You talk about the reward of rooting of rooting more of our political identities in the places we live, where these things are tangible and not symbolic. Um, and yeah, that I think that that the the disconnect between how every yeah how every everything does become, and how people and our fellow citizens become abstractions, um, in this obsession with politics at the national level. That just as you said, that just can't happen when it's your neighbor you're talking to, your aunt, even if they're driving you crazy. It it doesn't. It, it doesn't all feel so uncontrollable and like it's landing on you and like you are powerless. I think that's right. I, I like your term abstractions there. I This is something I'm struggling with myself. But the ways in which particularly social media um, flattens us, mm-hmm. flattens us down to sort of one-dimensional creatures, the way it robs us of context. It's actually something in my own work that I've been – one reason I've moved much more towards doing podcasts from some of the other things Did is you that – You went off Twitter for a while, didn't you? I did and then I've gone a little You've bit back, back on – you know, but yeah. I, I don't I don't spend that much time on it. Yeah. And, and that's very much by purpose. And honestly, you know, Twitter is something uh, to just be very straightforward about it. I think we'd be better off if we didn't have it. I think Twitter <laughs> okay. is net negative. And I think it's Jack specifically Dorsey very may be net negative. Yeah. I, I apologize to Jack, who I think is one of the more thoughtful of the tech leaders. Yeah. But I think that at least for politics, which is a space I know best, there's no doubt in my mind Twitter is net negative. And yet, there are other things that have been net negative for politics. You don't get to choose the mediums upon which your entire um, system depends. I- um, a lot of people felt that television was net negative, and I'm not yeah. sure they were in certain ways wrong about that. And so we're we're here. Um, and so the question a little bit is how do we make the best of it? We don't ju- We don't just get to sort of – 
you know, pull it pull it to like the exact moment in time we prefer. But I don't know, the way in which these things push us to be abstractions and also just warped versions of ourselves, the way we lose some of the yeah. both messiness and relatability of actual humanity, that's something that if that is the way your politics now works, if your politics mostly works digitally, if you are mostly dealing with people's avatars and usernames, you are going to hate politics a lot more than if you're dealing with people. And yeah. and, and as, as, as just one corollary point on that, if you are doing politics and it is primarily just digital, it's worth asking yourself, like, are you really even – like, I'm not even sure that really is doing politics in some deep way. I think that human organizing is the core form of politics. For me, reporting and talking to people is the core form of – is the core of what I do as a journalist. And I just – I don't want to be um, – uh, like overly saccharine about this, but I, I do, I do think it takes a lot of energy right now to not be lured into thinking that like the digital political world is the real world. You know, I wonder if you think this is too harsh, but I really feel that the way Twitter as a political force has come to the front and center of our of our life together is not just about Twitter, but it's been an absolute collusion of you know, of of major media. Um, I feel that the New York Times, um, as much as as much as Donald Trump, you know, got on Twitter and made it a center, a place where he lived and spoke, that the New York Times and other media outlets have trained us, you know, to wake up in the morning to learn what came out on Twitter overnight. And, you know, and again, you, as you say, here we are, we can't change it. But I... In the very beginning of this presidency, I wondered if it weren't possible for, you know, wouldn't it have been amazing if the Times and the Post, you know, and had gone to conservative media outlets and, and just said, you know, tweets are not policy statements. We will not cover them as such. I think if it hadn't been covered, if the attention hadn't been paid, I don't think it could have emerged as, as powerfully as it has. I obviously thing, I feel really strongly about this, and no, I've never I never hear journalists talking about it. Oh, I, I, um, I, I think I talk about Twitter probably too much, but I, I don't think I talk about it more than it I is. I hear important. you talking about think, it, but I, I do think it is yeah. like the central political communications platform. It is, even but if it's just like it was. The, we everything was handed over to Twitter, you know. But here, here is the thing for me, and I know this because I was one of the people who was running a newsroom at this time. If. Every If Dean Bacay could get every one of his reporters off Twitter, he would. If he could wave that wand, he would. Same is true, I am almost positive, for Marty Barron at The Washington Post, for Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic. I mean, I can't – I should not speak for these people, but I know from inside these institutions how many talks are given about Twitter etiquette. I know how frustrated the leaders of them all are with, like, the way reporters are. I was the same way and I gave, like, endless – but the problem is – um, none of us and, – and this is why my media chapter is very economic in its nature. It's very mm -hmm. much about how competitive the media has gotten, how the business model has eroded under our feet. We moved from a business model of having um, 
advertising monopolies, basically. Uh, either you had a monopoly because of the airwaves or only a couple networks or there's only so much radio band on FM or um, you had a local advertising monopoly as a newspaper. We moved into this hyper-competitive war of all against all um, digital space where you're not guaranteed any audience. And so what you end up doing, particularly as the audience moves over to these social platforms, which they don't do initially for news. They do initially because their friends are there. Um, they, As the audience moves right. over there, you have to compete for them. And if you don't, your competitors will beat you. And if you decide to never cover another Donald Trump tweet, I mean, you can maybe survive that. I think at this point you certainly could. But at that time – um, that would have just meant you sacrifice all of your – like half of your audience and not literally half but quite a bit. <laughs> and you do that enough times over and over again and you destroy your outlet at a time when you've already been doing layoffs, right? When nobody had this kind of safety that they could spend yeah. on like really unpopular decisions. So the point is not to excuse all of us because I think we could have managed this transition better and I think we could have been more farsighted and, you know, like – and I will be as self-critical as anybody on this or I think I am. But that said – the thing that I'm – again, to go back to my like endless like its structures, it looks from the outside like the New York Times is very powerful. The New York Times is subject to these economic forces as much as anybody, yeah. these competitive forces as much as anybody. And a lot of us now like look around and again, for me, this is one of the motivating dimensions that led to the book. A lot of us look around and think, I know every decision I made that got me here. I like know every single one. And most of them, if I had to do them again, I don't see how I would do them differently. And yet I also know that here is a bad place to have ended up. And so like trying yeah. to understand that structure of decision making is very much for me the core of it. Yeah. And I also – I mean I started out in print journalism and I was a New York Times stringer way back in the 1980s and divided Berlin. And I think – and I know this of you and I believe this of, of many journalists that, you know, I think journalism is a – it's, a, it's, a, it's very often a mission-driven profession. Um, I mean, I you know, you had a conversation with Jay Rosen on your podcast, who's such a kind of, I think, kind of a conscience of, of journalism and such a thoughtful thinker. And, you know, I, I found it very moving to listen to because you were, you were being very honest about um, living through this time as a journalist and you know, being kept awake at night by the by the sense that you and your colleagues were doing the best you could to to be of service and 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 to do you know to make journalism's distinctive contribution, and then also haunted by a feeling that you were becoming part of the problem. And I still think both are true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I when we started Vox, uh, we had sort of two taglines. One was explain the news and the other was what's most important often isn't what's new. And in a more optimistic mode, I thought those could work together, that you know the news would happen and we would use the curiosity generated by the new thing people were hearing about to turn the spotlight of that curiosity onto the underlying important thing that they should know more about. And that can work. Um, but if the news cycle gets hijacked either by – toxic players or by toxic forces. And so, you know, a toxic player might be somebody like Donald Trump, a toxic force might be something like some of the social media dynamics we see. Then all of a sudden, even if you're doing good work, if it's good work on top of a bad news cycle, it's mm -hmm. often bad work. Mm -hmm. and, and one version of this I'll, I'll, I'll say is that, you know, the news media as a whole, and this includes us at Vox, has I think done a lot of really good coverage 
of the racism and bigotry and indecency of, say, Donald Trump constantly calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. And I think if you read those articles in isolation, they're good articles and they kind of help you understand what are the roots of that and why should it disturb you. And on the other hand, the cumulative effect of that is to entrench the insult in the national consciousness. Um, and so if what you're doing is amplifying toxic stories, even to, debu- even to debunk them, even to contextualize them, even to try to say like, no, this is bad – It turns out that our most important power, at least in a digital attention scarce space, is that power not of negative or positive coverage, which is what we thought our power was, but of amplification. Like what have we decided to shine the national spotlight on? And that's something that I think we are not as an industry um, well suited to doing. What we try to do is outsource that question of what do we cover to at this point basically social media. But, you know, also to sort of other ideas of, you know – if there's a debate last night, we cover the debate. There's like some mixture of like what was outrageous, what is new, what is everybody else talking about? Right. And if you can get in the middle of that, then nobody questions why you're making the news judgments you make. Um, but I, if you start making your moral, own judgments, then people is, very then people begin to question it. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is this this question and this dilemma and this tension is not going to wait, going to go away. And just like every institution we have in this moment, in this early century, Every discipline is having in some way to re-examine its core and its structure. I, mean, I feel like this is the moral dilemma for journalism that it's it, that it's it's something's going to have to change. I mean, you know, I also think about as you just you know the the business model of this battle for attention that is completely new um, that that the digital era has ushered in. You know, but the other thing that 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 the digital world has done that I think a lot about is, I remember somebody saying to me when I started my show, somebody who was questioning that it was journalism, um, saying, you know, the news is about uh, this was a definition of news, and it was from a, a a really eminent journalist that news is the extraordinary thing that happened today. Um, and I think like when we read that in the newspaper every morning, you could kind of put it into the context of everything else that happened during the day. But in this 24-7 news cycle, people get this constant, they get this overload, this constant diet of, you know, and generally not just, like, it's not just extraordinary things, it's extraordinarily terrible things, um, yes. right? It's the things that are going to capture attention, which, as you said, I mean, I think you said political media is biased not towards the left or the right. As, as much towards loud, outrageous, colorful, inspirational, confrontational. And and the effect, like the impact question of journalism, the effect of all of that is to be is to demoralize and debilitate and depress people in the same way that politics is demoralizing and, and depressing people, that journalism is trying to be a constructive force in that, right? Or good and it's worse. And and I think it's even worse than that mm. because the great lie of journalism is that we're a mirror held up to the world. In fact, we're an actor upon that world. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really to me so deeply important, right? The, during particularly the period of objective journalism, quote unquote objective journalism, 
there was this idea that we weren't really making decisions. We were just reflecting, right? right. It's just just the facts. Yeah. Um, of course, choosing which stories is, is a tremendous – right. Choosing those stories is a tremendous form yeah. of um, bias and judgment and, and, and whatever you want to call it. But the key thing to me is that the more we focus, say, on confrontation, the more confrontation there actually will be. Right. The more we focus on the most polarizing stories – the more polarized the country will actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the audience has some re- relationship to this, right? As you say, we're, we're a little bit trying to chase audience. I'm not sure I actually believe that the audience wants like the worst work. And, and I think they get much better than the worst work, I think. And I want to say like for all that I'm trying to, to examine um, both my own organization and my industry – I think that overall, like, there's a tremendous amount of wonderful work done. I just think we're in a period where we have to um, reevaluate a lot of yeah. how we cover specifically politics and and very specifically sort of like national confrontational politics. But that said, um, you know, I, I, I relate some evidence in the book from political scientists that probably what led Donald Trump to win the Republican presidential primary was how much more coverage he got than all the other Republicans right. combined. I mean, he was able through being more outrageous, more confrontational, more offensive to deprive every other Republican in the room of oxygen. Maybe he would have won without that. But if it were something where instead of the shortcut to being covered, and this goes to what you're saying earlier about tweets, what if instead of the shortcut to being covered is you act in the worst possible way you can imagine? The shortcut to being covered is you act in the best, right? What if Donald Trump actually had a lot of trouble getting covered for his worst moments Mm -hmm. and it was both him and others who got coverage for – um, you know, their best. Now, you might say, well, who is immediate to decide their best moments? Isn't that a place where bias will creep in? And it is. But I would say that when we decide the worst moments, it is the same thing happening just in reverse. And when that happens, when you just fill the system with like the worst people doing the worst things, yeah. then people are re- have to react to that. And you mentioned it. We haven't talked that much about it. But a big theme of the book is a way that as – Audiences become more polarized. Institutions become more polarized. As institutions become more polarized, audiences become more polarized and they they enter into feedback loops. And I tell this story sort of structurally with the media, with elections, with governance, with a couple other things. And this is a a way in which it operates. If the media gives all of the attention to the loudest and most confrontational figures – that makes it much clearer to people which side they're on, right? Because those figures are very polarizing. You really know if you're for or against Donald Trump. Like people do not have like mixed views on him for the most part. And so like people move to one side or the other. And then in doing that, like then the situation is constructed for the next election where you have very polarizing figures that leads the country to become more polarized. And then now that you are trying to appeal to this more polarized country, your work becomes more polarizing as well because people want something that reflects who they believe in and, 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 and which side they think they're on. That's a very difficult dynamic to get out of. I'm not saying that it's easy to just adopt some other coverage structure, particularly, you know, these things are important. And many of the worst things, you feel that you're almost complicit in them if you're not paying attention to them. But I often think about this as like the um, – it's like an almost like an Amy Klobuchar problem, right? Amy Klobuchar is – a very she's one of the best liked senators by other senators. She is of every Democrat in the Senate. She performs best given how um, of, of, I'm sorry of everyone in the Senate. She is the most popular senator given the lean of her state. She overperforms electorally more than anyone else does. 
And she's a, a, a relatively understated politician compared to some of the others. And so it's a lot harder for her to get coverage. And by the way, that's hard on both ends. I can tell you that if you cover Amy Klobuchar, it's not like a shortcut to audience virality, which then if your editor is looking at your traffic at the end of the month, that's a problem for you. Yeah. On the other hand, there is value to politicians who are popular precisely because a lot of different kinds of people can uh, relate to them and see themselves in them. And the ways in which that gets missed and those people are now increasingly systematically um, underrepresented in political media is something that I think we need to turn the mirror on ourselves and ask, are we really making our decisions well? And if not, like how can we change things so that we're making them in a way that we think is more defensible? And, and you know, and I really want to affirm, I, I, I don't think this is about – bad people and i and i agree that there's a lot of great journalism happening like in some ways you know there's a, this is a real renaissance of investigative journalism yeah. um some of that is in my mind mixed up with true crime and <laughs> and so that's another thing we could talk about but um but actually the, you know one thing that's at play here that is real is that and you know you do spend a lot of time in the book and we and we don't have time to you know, to really dive into this, but you, you know, you're also analyzing and drawing out things that we are learning really for the first time about ourselves in this century through science, about how our brains work, about how we, how we, how our brains react to bad news. You know, we're kind of hardwired to pay attention um, when something is frightening or uh, feels threatening. Um, you know, I think so. I think so. This is not easy for you to say, and it, so it's not just the business model. Like you're up against a lot that is real, and and I and I do think that it will have to evolve. Like all of our, you know, education is having to evolve to these and to to this kind of knowledge. Um, and and I see a real a real challenge in journalism that is a that is a human challenge is how tricky it is. To make, and I'm not just talking about you know a polit, you know a better politician or a more thoughtful politician, but just goodness, right? I mean, I think the good news stories. I mean, what I see from the work I do and where I go in the country is there. There is absolute. There's like a there's a whole alternative narrative to the story of our time, which is, which is actually people, real people in real places, kind of stitching our country back together, one relationship at a time. It's very hard to make that into a riveting story the way it's easy to make something terrible or a disaster or or an evil person or or you know right into a riveting story and this is where the economics and technology of it are so important that when you knew that the way people were going to read your stories was they were already subscribed to your paper yeah. And they had a ritual where they spread it out in the morning yeah. while they drank their coffee. You had a lot more license to take risk with those stories because you weren't fighting. For you weren't going to lose um, them. They were already there. You weren't going to yeah. lose them. So you could take some risk or something could be a little bit boring. It was OK, right? Yeah. And now that it's very competitive, that is when we optimize in these directions. And and, and one way I argue it in the book is that you, you mentioned sort of the ways in which the brain is is – 
built to respond to intense emotion. Yeah. But the other thing that's very built to respond to is identity, um, our group. Uh, you know, is our group winning or losing? Is our group being threatened or, is, or are we safe, right? That's, it's incredibly deep in us, right? We are, we are social, pro-social creatures at our most fundamental level. You know, I, I say in the book, like we live in this moment, but our brains live in deep evolutionary time. Yeah. And they're not used to this many identities and groups and this much conflict. I mean, it's yeah. just not what they were built for. No. And so one of the things that I think is also very important is that it turns out that a really important shortcut to getting people to do anything, um, but particularly to be active in politics, to read or share a news article, to and more than both of those to operate on social media, is to activate their identities. And so something that I think is really a big question with that is are we activating good identities in people or bad identities in people? Mm -hmm. Like a huge argument of the book is that we've misunderstood the term identity politics. We apply it only to traditionally marginalized groups like, you know, so African-Americans and Black Lives Matter. Well, that's identity politics. But rural gun owners who are upset about universal baggage, like that's just politics. We kind of wipe out um, particularly dominant identities. But the core of our politics is political identity. Um, these other things tend to be tributaries feeding into it. And so the easiest way to get people to read political stories is to like tap on that political identity. You know, like you don't like Trump or you really love Trump and he's the greatest president ever. And I think that something that we're going to have to get better and better at is trying to call forward alternative identities because we don't just have one, you know, like you can be curious, you can be fair-minded, you can yeah. see yourself as an animal lover. I mean, there, you know, I, I find a lot of, it's one reason I push state and local politics. You can care a lot about what's happening nearby. Um, I find a lot of power and I often like really work to front load this in my personal identity as a journalist. Sometimes when I feel the other stuff is overtaking me, I try to like pull myself back into that. Like my job is to be curious, to try to understand how things work, to try to explain them to an audience that wants to know. But one of the just like the very difficult things in all this is it's not just that we are tapping on people's emotion. We found the best way to do it is to combine it with their deeper identities. And that's that is really powerful kindling to play with. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we don't and I'm not saying that I don't. I want to be real clear that this is not me saying, hey, they're all doing this, but yeah. me. No, I, I um, think it's what you're saying. It's I'm built it into too. the structure. It's, it's built into the right. way it works now, um, even for individuals who might not want to be doing that. Right. And and so we're all sort of part of it and we're all mm -hmm. here together. But it's very hard to think about. Um, it's not impossible to imagine how we can get out. And it's not – and again, it's not to say it's worse than it's ever been, right? We had a civil war in this country. Yeah. But it's it's – it's bad. Um, I think these are these are very powerful dynamics. And the thing I want more than anything in the book for people to see is that these are like feedback loops that have been set off. And if they're not actually interrupted in some way, they will just keep going. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Do can we run a little bit over? Um... I, I have all the time you would like okay, to use. Okay, great, great. Cause... And I'm enjoying the conversation yeah, greatly. So I I'm, wish I'm here I... as long as you'd like me. <laughs> Well, we won't go that much longer, but I, I have – oh, there's so much here we could talk about. So, you know, you and I will keep talking. Um, yeah, can I just say that one of the, the – this may strike you as funny, but one of the hopeful moments in the book for me is coming across – this is actually as an aside, but you're talking about an interview you did with Sarah Binder, Sarah Binder, uh -huh. about the a book about the history of filibustering. And she tells you a story that begins in 1805. Aaron Burr had just killed Alexander Hamilton. Yep. And I thought, 
okay, like we need to remember that. Yes, we do. <laughs> and that, but, but, but what he didn't, what he was doing in the story she's telling is he's he's going to the Senate to give his farewell address, right? And it's not just that, um, it's not just that dueling was uh, a legal way of gentlemen ending disputes including very senior political figures in our country, it was what noble people did, right? And it mm-hmm. changed. And and that kind of dramatic moral change does happen again and again in history if you and you can see it if you can take a long enough view of time. And if you can as you say, if you have the the privilege of being able to take a long view of time. It there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff in that. Sorry, that's a terrible way to say that. There's so much there in those old stories that I find very powerful. But but one of the things there, too, at that same moment, and this is part of what leads to the, the Hamilton-Burr duel. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the media here. Back then, newspapers were fundamentally partisan institutions. Right. They I were actually often didn't know funded that as directly much. by political parties. Like when you look around and if you're in an area where you have a, a newspaper that's like, you know, the Arizona Republic used to be called the Arizona Republican. I did not um, know there that. There are a until lot of things called like Yeah, there's a lot of newspapers that are called something like the Democrat Gazette. Yeah. That's not just a weird thing that the news used to have words like Democrat in headline. Like that reflected that this was for Democrats. And what changed was a mixture of, I mean, there's a whole story about this, but technology brought the price of of printing newspapers down. And then there was this business model that emerged. And if you could get it to everybody and own the advertising market, you could set prices for the advertisers. But the only way to own the advertising market was to not turn off people so you couldn't be part of it. So there's like a whole interesting set of interlocked, interlocking technological, economic, and then um, ethical reasons that news evolved in the way that it did. And, and by the way, as a blogger, I was one of the people who was trying to push away from what I felt was a, a kind of like neutrality in journalism that made it hard to tell the truth. But like with everything, there's good and bad in every set of reforms and things will change. I mean, to me, one of the great, most deeply important stories of of this era is around the social media platforms, which are fundamentally the space upon which so much of our um, politics and media is happening now. And, you know, we – people talk a lot about privacy and Cambridge Analytica. But to me, the thing that is almost most important in this era for some of these issues at least is just simply recognizing that if we are going to structure – a huge swath of human and political communication around algorithmically mediated engagement that selects for intense emotional reaction, well, this is what we're going to get. We don't have to do that. There's nothing that says we have to do it that way. But that is currently what we are doing. And people have all these arguments about free speech. This has nothing to do – Mark Zuckerberg, who's a very – thoughtful guy in a lot of ways. He gave this speech at Georgetown a couple months ago where he framed his defense of Facebook as a defense of the principle of free speech. But it's not that. Nobody, and certainly not me, is telling Mark Zuckerberg to shut down free speech on Facebook. What he's actually defending is speech is algorithmically mediated to to surface the strongest and most intense reactions. And when you say it like that, well, then it's much more arguable. The question is not should, con- should Congress pass a law not allowing you to say you don't like Republicans or Democrats or not allowing you to say you're an atheist. It's is the way that speech should be selected for that it made you go, oh, I hate that guy. Yeah. Or it made you go, uh-huh. I mean maybe just <laughs> not, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe we should not have everything cranked up to 11 all the time. 
And, you know, I will say also in this alternative, this parallel reality of our time, um, just as you and others are asking these searching questions of, of how journalism, the way we inherited it and the way it has like immediately adapted to this digital world and to the changes of the early 20th century, like how it has to evolve and, and how it can become more responsive and and be and have the impact that journalists, that good journalists, wanted to have. Um, I know that, and I'm, you know, there are so many people inside Silicon Valley and inside these companies who are asking these searching questions, and you know, and, the, and it's a similar. It's also a problem of the business model because those algorithms are part of very profitable systems. So it's it's mm-hmm. the change isn't immediate, but but the questions are being asked and I, and i really think like this 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 kind of questioning and 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 what ha- comes of it is is that is it is really generative work of our time that you know if it continues and gets legs is is also what people will see those fictional people i'm always thinking about 100 years from now <laughs> what they and, will see of us how they'll tell the story of us and there's a, a there's a question of where we choose to spend our time and where mm-hmm. we choose to um, emphasize our our work. I mean, you know, as somebody who operates in a lot of mediums simultaneously, I'm on Twitter, as you mentioned, and I write for a digital outlet and I do videos and I'm on cable news. And I mean, one reason I've invested a lot personally in podcasting is that it feels look, I feel like as soon as you begin saying this, um, <laughs> it begins to change. But podcasting is a place right now to me that feels more generative in part because the thing that we've done in a lot of these other spaces is that we've become so efficient. We've become so optimized for attention that we've sliced out a lot of what makes us human and a lot of those edges and rough edges that lets us identify with each other and gives people ways in. And podcasting is so messy uh, that I think there's a lot more space in it. There's a lot more air in in the in the, in the final product. There's a lot more non-duality, right? There's a lot more capacity to say, you know, that's a. I think that argument is mostly wrong, but there is a part of it that really resonates yeah. for me, right? That's a really hard thing to do in writing. Uh, it's really, I find at least. Um, actually, you're somebody who writes very well in this in this regard, but I find it's very hard in like the structures of political writing to say. I think this argument is 65% wrong. Yeah. But, you know, that 35% that's not wrong is important. That's an important insight. And just being – I don't know. I think that there's a very – this sounds so soft. It sounds so fuzzy. But I think there's a very deep imperative to rehumanize ourselves and each other. Um, it's another reason I think newsletters have been powerful like, and are making a real comeback. I think that there's – I think that there's some kind of partial answer lurking in that. Um, that, you know, when I look for things that make me a little bit more optimistic, um, the audience's clear desire for that uh, is, is one of them. Yeah. And, and what else? What, well, I think podcasting is so interesting. It really is a game changer. And, of course, it's going to be full of every foible. It's going to have its dark side. You know, it's people. But, but you know, another thing that it's done – that is huge. So so I think about when I wanted to start this show back in the early 2000s and all these experts in public radio, I mean, most of the experts said long form is dead, right? You cannot, they said, you cannot have an hour of public radio, which is actually only 52 minutes, 
of one conversation, people won't listen, right? <laughs> and in fact, when American public media, when podcasting came along, which was a few years into this, um, American public media wouldn't let our show be podcast. They were podcasting marketplace because there was this idea that that's what people want. Podcasting, because that, that thing you're talking about, that phenomenon of being able to go deep and get into the complexity and the messiness and kind of contradict yourself as you lay it all out is also a function of having time, right? Having the time and space and the long conversation, the long meandering conversation to, to go deep. And that's so, that to me is so fascinating, this big turn. And it's fascinating agree, to me that yeah. people listen to things that are three hours long. I can't yeah, believe it. There, there are things out there. I mean, you know, there are episodes of Joe Rogan getting millions and millions of views yeah. and they're, you know, three and a half, four hours long. And so there's, there's always more. There's just always more. There are more ways for it to turn out. There are more things happening out there than, than people give credit for. Um, and systems can be built in different ways. I mean, that to me is part of the value of trying to shine a light on structures because the thing about structures is that as much as they um, might be somewhat determined by, by by other structures, right, everything is interlocking, they're also like everything we're talking about is a construct. Everything we're talking about is constructed. I mean we're, we're, not, we're not talking about people um, wandering around naked picking up fruit like, like, in, the, like <laughs> right. the, in the earliest days of humanity right. trying to get enough calories to survive. Yeah. Like we're talking about something where – you know, we're sitting here with microphones. I mean, everything is built. Yeah. And what has been built can be unbuilt. And what has been built can be changed or reformed. I don't think it's easy. And I don't think it's something that, you know, kind of people can do overnight. But we do live mm-hmm. in an age when a lot is being more open to question. I, I would say if I was looking at things that, you know, who knows in the long run whether or not we will see it as a as a deeply positive development or a, a more negative one. But something that is true in this exact moment in politics is a lot more is up for questioning than was true 15 years ago. Um, just people are willing to ask questions about the underlying values of systems. What do you think the, of when you say that? Just... I mean, I think that there's been a rise on the left of a socialist critique that is calling into question very deep assumptions of, you know, what is animated Democratic Party liberalism for a long time. Mm-hmm. On the right, you've seen the rise right now of, you know, a, a religious Catholic right critique, uh, you know, and some, you know, the integralists and others who are, are calling things into question. I think that this is, you know, Donald Trump in his own ways, Bernie Sanders and others. I think that people – and one thing I see in podcasting and also on YouTube is people want to – what they really want to have is a debate over like the core value issues. That's true in politics, but it's also true in a show like yours, mm-hmm. right? What you what you are here having conversations with people every week about is very fundamentally about how to live and move through this world and understand it and understand your role in it. It's why I find the – it's why I find um, your, your podcast and, and show so powerful. And that is – that at least can be healthy. Now, it could be that what we end up questioning is stuff that was actually good. And, you know, I've, I've certainly seen, seen examples of that moving in a, in a bad direction. But Like some, what? What do you think of there? I mean, I think of the alt-right. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's been an effort to question a what they would call an orthodoxy. Right. We, there, any, everything can like be multiculturalism. questioned. Right. Including I mean, Donald Trump like in progress. very deep ways yeah. um, is somebody who has arisen to question mm-hmm. things that I think are largely positive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from what we were talking about earlier, where everything contains in some ways its opposite, 
I think that by the same nature, what follows him might be able to move in a more um, justice-oriented direction uh, with more force and fervor uh, than maybe would have been true otherwise. Yeah. Okay. I want we I well so I want to I just want to take one I don't think this is a detour but it's just something I'd love to talk to you about this observation you have that you come back to circle back to in in your writing that ideological extremism is in the eye of the beholder. And this mm-hmm. also really is it's useful to have a long view of time, right? You talk about even the way the, a lot of the assumptions we have in this country for example about healthcare, you could imagine, you know, you could be argued from the perspective of other countries as extreme, what we think is just normal and kind of baseline, or the way we in this culture, fraught as it is, but, and yet the directionality of how we're grappling with race, with you know things like if you know let's just say you know, like with 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 gay marriage or let's say how interracial marriage sixty years ago was you know not just illegal but more considered to be morally abhorrent. So the ways we're dealing with some really fundamental cultural forms would have been seen as extremism. Um, you are vegan. The politics of food, which is I just feel like everything we learned about food in school for the last fifty years is being completely upended and and what we're learning about the business of food as it evolved and now folding in what we're learning about this world we live in. Um, I just think that's such a helpful thing to think about too, although it does complicate things again, right? It makes it then it's like you can you trust what you <laughs> What you mm-hmm. think is is rational and and valid and moral. It's very hard to both exist inside and outside a system or a consensus at the same time. And yet somehow you need to. I feel this in politics all the time. Um, so the example you give is a really good one. Uh, on the one hand, within the American context right now, Medicare for all is considered a more extreme idea. Yeah. Um, a single-payer system is considered a more extreme idea than, say, let's build a little bit on Obamacare. Yeah. Um, from the context of another country, uh, what America permits to happen in its healthcare system, the prices we pay, the number of people who go uninsured, the number of people who can't access care because of cost is breathtakingly extreme. If, if, if the conservative party in the UK proposed that they move – rightward towards an American system, they would never win another seat. Yeah. And so well, who's the extreme one? I would say we are. And, and I, I feel very, very, very strongly about animal suffering and animal rights issues. And, you know, vegans are like it is like synonymous with extremism. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Bourdain had this famous line that vegans are the Hezbollah-like splinter sect <laughs> of right. vegetarians. Yeah. And I deeply hope, I deeply hope that in the future – it is the idea that we were willing to torture animals under these conditions, under like industrial factory farming conditions. If you're hunting elk, I don't – you know, that's not my issue. Um, but what we do to chickens raised for Purdue is uh, – it's so terrible that people – that states pass laws so people can't see it, ag gag mm-hmm. laws. And so mm-hmm. to me, that's very deeply extreme. But there's no doubt that my position, which is let's not torture the animals as much because we don't need to, 
um, is like technically the more extreme one. So extremism, moderation, these are very – these are relative terms yeah. and whether they're relative – like sometimes we're speaking with, the, with the, like the boundaries being our current culture. Sometimes it's our current age. But they really change um, they, 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 and they can change rapidly. And I think one thing that's always hard for people to keep in mind, it's a way in which my work I think has evolved in recent years is there's one version where what you're trying to do is you accept the boundaries of the conversation or the consensus you're in and try to like make things as good within those boundaries as you can. Then there's another kind of activism or work or just questioning where you're trying to stop taking those boundaries for granted and change them fundamentally. And both things are important and sometimes the two things can conflict. Sometimes like if I'm too aggressive about my animal rights positions, I turn people off, right? I make in some ways the situation worse. So there's a tension. It's not just like be as morally uncompromising as you can be all the time, at least not if what you care about is making things a little bit better. But try and at least be mindful of which one you're doing at which time and which conversation you're having at which time is at least a worthwhile practice. Um. Identity mindfulness is another phrase that you use. You, 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 you know, you don't want to be making proposals, and I think also as a journalist that doesn't feel instinctive. But um, you know, and actually, you you write, um, yeah, I know. Of course, the politics book by the liberal Californian vegan ends with a call to mindfulness, but slowly take ten breaths, making sure your mind doesn't wander, and hear me out. <laughs> Would you talk about so that's really that's really you're really proposing of practice um, for yeah just internalizing and then the, these things that we're talking about and that we can know and also really a way of taking control over the ways we're feeling so many of us are feeling manipulated by the politics and the media. Yeah, there. I, I should say that there's a set of kind of big picture systemic reforms I'd make to American politics that I mentioned uh-huh. in the book, but yeah. I don't believe they would solve the problems I'm like concerned about. I think the they would make us college and things like that. Right, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, be proportional representation. I think there are ways we can make things better, but uh-huh. they're not going to solve everything. Um, but this is a thing that people really can do, and because a lot of the book is about how we are manipulated by politics, and very importantly, how. We are manipulated through our political identities. That one thing that I urge people to do is start trying to notice it. Start trying to see how do you feel when you read that article in what momentary is ways, you? right? Just like in momentary yeah, ways, yeah. right? How did you feel when you read that tweet? Um, what identity has been called forward for you? Uh, and and in particular, what I want people to see is if you set up your informational world such that every time you turn on your computer, when you grab your phone in the morning, you have like fifty six alerts that are all pounding away at the same angry, frustrated, like national political identity. You may be way more indexed on that than is actually even healthy for the things you're trying to change, right? It may be that just all you need to know is you 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 agree with the Democrats or the Republicans and you can like turn the temperature down on that stuff a bit as long as you still vote or organize or whatever it is that you do. But just watching to notice when things are being called forward in you. So then you can ask yourself, well, do I actually want to change my information diet? One of the things I think is really important to know is that and, – and, and to begin to see in the world is that there are certain identities that other people and other institutions have put literally billions of dollars into, building structures 
to activate and strengthen them within us. So, you know, to, to use a non-political example, if you wander around in many cases your local town, you'll see a lot of propaganda for a sports team um, right, right. that is meant to make you feel identified with this team that probably moved there uh, only once they were given sufficient stadium tax breaks <laughs> right, right. and the people on it will move to another team if they get paid more money. And yeah. it doesn't really care about you that much, but you are – a lot of money is going into making you feel identified with it and in a different way. Like there's a reason there's so many American flags everywhere. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Some identities are healthy. I feel patriotically American in, in, in those ways. But it is very then easy if you are not paying attention – to let other people define your strongest identities because there's so much infrastructure built into activating and reinforcing them. And if you want to then let some of those identities weaken a little bit or inhabit others more often, you have to do that very intentionally. And you have that agency. And you have that agency. I mean, one thing that is true is that there's more choice than ever. Paradoxically, more choice than ever often, like, makes us opt into the defaults. There's so much choice, it's paralyzing. And that would be something to to try to get attentive to as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one thing I have really appreciated in... Um, in your podcast, the Ezra, Ezra Klein Show, and, and I and I know that this this was also really research that went into the to the writing of this book is the conversations you've had with with people who are on a very different place on the political spectrum from you, and and on a different place on the political spectrum than than I think naturally um, is kind of robustly engaging with the world you inhabit as a journalist. Um, um, because that, I mean, that's, or just, we all, we all have trouble actually engage, even the people who want to be engaging with quote unquote, the other side. I think one of the weird, weird crises of our time is people don't know how to get into the room with those other people, but you've mm-hmm. brought, invited people and thinkers and research into your podcast room. Um, and I, uh, I, I, you know, I saw somewhere in another, another interview that somebody did with you, where they asked you for book recommendations, um, uh, for lib- for conservatives <laughs> who might want to become who might be leaning more liberal, but I'd really love to know um, who are what are some of the conversations you've had with people on the conservative in the in the conservative aspect of our political life, or or who are doing really interesting research that helps illuminate what the difference is and is not between conservatives and liberals um, that has really been formative for you that has opened your mind in a way maybe you didn't expect and that you, you would recommend um, other people introduce themselves to? Oh, that's interesting. In some ways, those are two different things. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> um, so, some of the ones that have been most helpful for me, I think, are not the most pleasant to listen to. Okay. Uh, but that said, let me think about a couple here. So I've had a couple conversations with uh, a conservative intellectual who I think of as making in many ways the best case for contemporary conservatism. And I don't mean that in the terms of like what Donald Trump represents, but the actual conservative mindset. Mm-hmm. It's a guy named Yuval Levin. Um, uh, he's got an interesting book coming out called A Time to Build. Yeah. And I just think that if you want to hear a like the conservative temperament, it's sort of best form conducted in real time, Yuval's and and maybe hopefully my conversations with him are a good place to, to start. I had a debate with uh, another podcaster named Sam Harris uh, a couple yes. of years ago now, yeah. I think. Um, and I found that incredibly helpful for thinking about identity. Um, not, and I think, in the ways he had hoped I would, but 
I found the work I had to do for that and then kind of seeing how it played out was actually in some ways very important for me in constructing some parts of this book uh, because it helped me see the ways in which things that I would not always have – the ways in which identity was something thrown at others and it's very often difficult to see in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it helped me do some self-reflection on that and um, and led to some very fruitful lines of inquiry that ended up um, uh, proving out in the research. And so that was, I think, pretty, pretty useful for me. Um, I had a conversation with a guy named Rod Dreher uh, who wrote a book called The Benedict Option, um, and he's a very conservative Christian. I'm so conservative as a Christian that his sort of book is about the need for actual practicing Christians, at least in the way he would define that, to recede into monastic communities where they can live their faith without so much interference, although he's a political commentator and a quite, I would say, confrontational one. But I found that to be a really helpful conversation, not because I can talk Rod out of his views on any of this. I very much cannot. But because it gave me more insight into at least what the subjective experience of feeling that the culture is turning away from you in this yes. way is. I, I, um, so that, yeah. yeah. I, 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 you know, I've, I've followed Rod for a long time and interviewed him many years ago, I think maybe after the. 2004 election. And I I feel like that he is such a good example of actually what you're describing in the book. Somebody I've watched become so much more polarized mm-hmm. than he started out. Um, and I think also, as you're right, when you draw him out, you get a sense of that, a, a human sense of that. But also you can see and, and this is some I say this to Rod in the in the discussion, so this is not something I'm like doing after the fact, mm-hmm. but he's very much built an informational world for himself mm-hmm. where if you follow what the culture looks like on his blog, you actually see a culture in many ways that I don't recognize. Yeah, um, no, it, that right. is just much more extreme. Um and so he's building for himself and his and his community a world that is more threatening than I think even the actual like world they live in is, which, you know, there are reasons one might do that. And, and my point is not to critique him in a space he can't respond. But given that we had this conversation, to me, that was a it was an interesting dimension of it. And, and also in some of the ways we're talking about, I find him much more reasonable and willing to, um, uh, you know, take in take in some of the pushes, you know, in in podcasting. And I think maybe people would say that for me, too. Yeah, no, he um, was you are genuinely curious and and it you know listening to to these conversations shows just how effective that is in just diffusing um mm-hmm. what 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 just so often is merely a standoff and you know presentational and confrontational and i you know i don't want to say it's even merely a standoff i think both sides of that are true mm-hmm. um you know, that there's the version we are. I actually have had the experience as a podcaster where I will have somebody on and I want them there because the argument they lay out in their book or in a critique of me maybe is so sharp and so different that I really want to explore that. And then in the room with me, because social dynamics trend towards conciliation, yeah. I will find it impossible to get them to lay out their actual right. argument, <laughs> that I won't be able to get the thing. And it's an inter- And the point is not like uh, – in some ways, like that's actually a problem. The, the thing that has been a teacher for me in, the thing that has taught me rather to actually speak English in a more usable way mm. is that we are very different depending on the context and medium in which we are communicating and both those versions of us are true. It's not that they don't believe the thing they wrote in the book. 
And it's not that they're just lying to me. It's that when we're in interaction, when we're in a dynamic interaction with another person, that often leads towards a kind of softening of our edges, a space for conciliation. Uh, look, you don't seem so bad. I'm sure you have a point on that, but yeah. I think. Or I versus when say, we're writing, it's more sharp lines, like yeah. drawing clear boundaries. And I would say, yes, a softening, but really a fullness of ourselves, right? Because we are all full of contradiction. And as you say, like this part of the poverty of our time is how the way we've been sorted um, – and this is in extremely represented in politics, has kind of made us all caricatures of ourselves, right, in public. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to that, although I always want to be careful because sometimes you can fool yourself into thinking, I don't want to say people are more reasonable than they are, mm -hmm. but that the more reasonable version they are with you is going to be the one that they act in out in the world. And, and I will often then have the experience, and I've had this as a reporter many times, I'll like sit with a Republican member of Congress and we'll have a good discussion and they'll go and vote in a way where um, I'm not shocked because I, I know how the votes are going to turn out in general. But it's very different than that. Right. Um, and so sometimes it's it's a hard thing to hold, right? It's mm -hmm. a hard thing to hold that the the face people present you with may be a true one. But then in another context, it may not be the one that drives our behavior. Or given a choice, they may choose something that you feel is so for is just much further into an extreme version than than what you had seen with them and that's always yeah. that's always a difficult that's always a difficult thing and and that said i think a lot you know that's also criticism i'm sure many people could make of me i there's a a line, a sentence, a sense that the conversation he had with Danielle Allen meant a lot to you. Uh, that, she's so great. Yeah. And and I, I can tell that that one was really meaningful for you. And you, this sentence that you quote that really struck out, it really jumped out at me. It's the love of democracy that has to compensate for the pain of democracy. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, um, is that, is that, would you describe, you, you speak also in, about you know democratic practice and you know, is what does that mean for you love of democracy is that is that appealing to you that notion personally it is um i have a pretty deep commitment to uh i'm actually trying to work on an essay about this and having trouble with it but a, a commitment to a pretty full idea of democracy um and and democratic equality which I think is sort of the more important dimension of it. Like there's a question of majority rule and I care a lot about those, but that's thin. You know, if you just create majority rule, then hopefully you get your 51 percent or more and you're able to do the thing that you think is better for the world. And that's better than the, the people you don't think are better for the world doing their thing. Like I get that and I want to abolish the filibuster and all of it. But I think that if you ask me what I really think we'll need to do, although I'm not confident we will, is it – we need to have a much richer form of democratic practice. And one of the things that is suffused in Daniel Allen's work, and there's another philosopher, um, Elizabeth Anderson, who does a lot of work on this, that we we need to we need to build a politics where one of our aims is the participation and respect we give to each other. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean a politics where the fights aren't hard fought or the stakes aren't high or everything is compromised down for no reason, but that in some kind of deep way, we need to be looking to pull people into the process mm -hmm. and, and we need to be looking to pull people back from the ledge. And something that I struggle with and feel somewhat strongly about, but you know, it's a tricky thing, is that 
I think that there's a lot of push towards something I've come to think of as almost an anti-politics, a politics of of writing each other out, yeah. of saying that you're actually irredeemable at this point. I don't have to deal with you. Um, Arthur Brooks had a nice distinction uh, in a podcast with me where he talked about the difference between anger and contempt. Yeah. Anger is a, a is an emotion that maybe can bring us closer together. When I'm angry at you, what I want to do is like is solve the problem. Contempt is I don't even need to deal with you anymore. I'm just writing you off. I can't yeah. even. And I think a lot of online politics um, pushes towards the politics of contempt and pushes towards a sort of anti-politics, which would be fine maybe if it worked, um, right? I, I can be enough ends justify the means that if that's how you could pass universal health care, great. But because I'm pretty uh, pessimistic about that anti-politics working, because I'm very pessimistic that the kinds of disagreements we've had in this country, the polarization we have in this country, the um, divides we have in this country – are illusory or just going to go away. Mm. Well, then, if you can't find a way to pull people into your side, if you can't find a way to at least make them feel unafraid of you holding power, then you're in a tough spot. I mean, maybe demographics will do the work for you over time. I think that's possible. But in the meantime, it's pretty hard. And it's something I see. I I think Obama was in many ways, for all that it did not work to everybody's wildest dreams, he was very good at this kind of politics and very, very good at it in 08. Um, and it's one reason he won two terms that with you know clear majorities, which is that he was able to – for many people who knew he didn't agree with them, they still felt that he on some level liked them and respected mm-hmm. them and wanted them to be part of the process. And I think that that's a very – it's a very – there are a lot of people who do not practice a politics like that and in many ways I think people are beginning to gravitate or or mistrust a politics that works like that because they wanted to find people so fully by their political opinions. Yeah. And again, I can see some of the morality of that. These are these are important issues, but even even if you're just looking at it instrumentally, I don't think that kind of politics works. And so I'm pretty committed personally to a like a like a form of small-D democratic politics where one of the things you are trying to do is have disagreements where the losers can still feel respected. Yeah. Doesn't Danielle Ellen, Ellen talk about political friendship, that notion of mm-hmm. – um, yeah, and I think, um, you know, as you – one of the things you describe as part of a, a factor in this polarization is that the people who get the attention are – yeah, perhaps people who are quite happy for contempt to be the mode. But even as you say, even as I feel like that 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 certainly has become more real and certainly more formative, forceful, I think there's this counter movement, again, not in places that get publicized. And it, it's not even necessarily... A, a big political change of heart. It's just people don't want to live this way, right? People are exhausted. And and also, I, I think this kind of moves into the question I want to ask you as we close. I think people are also thinking, so many of us, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, are parents. And, and we are thinking about the world our children will inherit. And you have become a parent in this tumultuous, tender moment in American life. And I, I'm just curious about how that is flowing into, you know, this thinking that you do and this reflecting on um, politics and and our country. It's, it's very deeply grounding. Um, 
And in many ways, it intensifies some things. I don't want to say like, well, now they become a parent. I know I was more right than ever. <laughs> but certainly something that I feel very deeply being a parent is, God, does it strike you in the face with how unfair things are? Mm-hmm. Um, both, um, you know, just in the lottery of birth itself, right? Did you Were you born healthy? Were you born to uh, a family that could care for you? Were you born to a family that had resources to care for you, that had time to be with you? Yeah. I know what... I can, what I have the ability to, to to give and do for and with my son. And it breaks my heart that not everybody, like not every parent is able to have, say, even the flexibility in their time to, to be there for, you know, when they go to sleep. And so one thing it just does is I think it really strikes you in the face with the reality and the unfairness of inequality, um, what you are asking people to make up for on the back end. So that's a way in which I think it has – I trend towards a pretty egalitarian um, politics and it's pushed that a lot further. The other part of it is just – and this is softer maybe but my son seems to me so good <laughs> um, just when I look at him and when mm-hmm. I look at the natural way he engages with the world. And somewhere along the line, most of us lose a lot of that. And there are, I'm sure, a lot of different reasons and evolutionary things and, you know, you don't want people to just smile, literally everybody. But there's <laughs> right. something about yeah. thinking about where where is that getting lost? Yeah. Um, and also, how do I react to him that makes that possible and, and such I don't react that way to other people? Mm-hmm. I think a lot about how when he's upset and being kind of what one might call a jerk and I'm very tired today and he was up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole thing. You know, my question said is not, well, first of all, how dare you? Don't you know what I'm going through? <laughs> um, it's, oh, are you hungry? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Is something bothering you? Is it cold in here? Yeah. Like, is something wrong? Is there a zipper? You know, you go through this whole thing. Like, there's, like something must be wrong for you to be acting this way. Maybe I can help you find what it is. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as we get the ability to speak, it's like somebody wrongs us. And it's like, how dare you? Let me tell you why. Right. And... I am not saying that it is occasion to some capacity for me to be a like a like a bodhisattva in my um, interactions with other people, including people I love. Um, you know, I was tired today and I spoke sharply to somebody I love because of it. Uh, it but it's it's at least given me something kind of deep to reflect on. I don't know if that's really a political question, but I think in some of these questions of how do we understand other people's politics, given that given how much more similar, I think, we are to kids than to the sort of rational super agents of, you know, economic models that we, or and that we pretend philosophical to be, yeah. models. Yeah. That I think there's some, there's some relevance of that to politics, to recognizing that people's politics may not be as much a choice for them as we often think they are. Mm. And I think that the, all the research that you delve into really, really cutting edge scientific research is absolutely bearing that out, right? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, Ezra, this has just been great, and um, I'm so grateful. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't get to have this conversation very often, and I really enjoyed it. And there's nobody yeah, I th- want to have it with but you. So thank you. Yeah, this was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it, and it's so wonderful. This is the first interview I've done on the book, yeah. um, and so it's so it's such an incredible pleasure and fulfillment to hear it refracted through your. Very humane lens. So oh. thank you for thank you for that. Well, uh, good luck with this with launching it and um, 
yeah, just thank you for making the time and, and um, wish you, you know, beautiful end of the year, turn of the year. Of course, end to you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Talk soon.